0: welcome to the 2020 30 podcast i am magdalena Schaffrin from studio MMO 4 and we are the organizers behind the 2020 30 the berlin fashion summit and i have really nice and special guests today with me from the company called pentaton Tonic and it is Lauren Greenwood and Johan Werdeker. So we will be talking about circularity and how we make the shift happening from like a linear um, from a linear from a linear economy to a circular economy. So welcome Lauren and welcome Johan. Thank Thank you for having us. Uh, maybe you can uh, just have a short introduction of yourself. That would be very nice to start with.
1: I'm Johan Um i I'm one of the founders of Pentatonic. And uh, I am from Germany originally. I've fallen in love with manufacturing and supply chain and circular economy. Living abroad in the Far East in Taiwan. Working across um, Taiwan and China in the field of supply chain using recycled materials more than a decade ago. And that that sent me on this whole beautiful journey that ultimately culminated in the founding and uh, growth of uh, Pentatonic.
2: So, and Lauren, what about you? Yeah, um, I'm a product director at Pentatonic, uh, where I've been since almost the beginning, when we, yeah, I joined in 2017, I think just after we'd launched. Um, but my background is um, fashion and textiles, so I had to somewhat, yeah, traditional kind of fashion training background and worked with lots of different um, SMEs um, before joining Pentatonic where, yeah, everything became a lot more diverse and interesting and um, working with lots of different materials, um, different kind of supply chains, different colleagues in from engineering and different backgrounds. So, yeah, much more interesting, um, yeah, topics.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about Pentatonic. So um, why did you start the company and uh, what it is all about? So what are you working with and what kind of projects are you doing? Because, I mean, when you look up in the Internet, www.pentatonic.com, you will find a lot of information of on circularity and uh, very Uh, diverse customers as well. So, um, I mean, we have invited you to the 2030 Summit to discuss about uh, circularity in the fashion supply chains, but you are also working in other fields. So please uh, give us a little bit of insights on your work with Pentatonic.
1: Yeah, firstly, on a personal level, um, you know, there are founders of companies who always knew they were going to found a business. There are people who are just put on this earth to start a business, even if they don't know what it is yet. Natural-born leaders—that's not me. So, so this is a business of uh, that, that came about as a consequence, given the opportunity for impact and the passion for the subject matter. So, I would describe myself as a initially quite reluctant founder, and still that word doesn't sit quite comfortably with me. I also think that in our business, the competence is much more evenly distributed. So, you have some businesses where. A genius professor who has a breakthrough, you know, CRISPR gene editing um, piece of technology, builds a team around him to to execute his vision. I think um, Pentatonic happens, which is a perfectly valid model, and you know, great if that works. It happens to be the case that at Pentatonic, our know-how is more evenly distributed across the team. So I think that that that's uh, perhaps. Uh, a peculiarity about our business that's that's worth noting. So as such, um, you know, I'm not here alone. I'm here with Lauren, who knows much more about many things, <laughs> um, um, uh, especially when it comes to, to fashion.
2: Um, well, I guess circularity and circular economy has been like the lens through which we've viewed all of our work and our projects through. Um, but this can be applied to almost every industry. So like this is kind of like the... The starting point um, but we've worked with so many different companies and organizations um, from like very very varied like sectors so for example we worked with an insurance company which sounds (laughs) doesn't sound like immediately obvious what we would be doing there or especially interesting but it was a very very interesting project and and really quite um, insightful Um, then through more like brand-led businesses so like especially when you look at fashion it's like very much on the kind of brand building marketing side of things and then we've had clients that are much more um yeah focused on just the product itself and they make many many units of something and there's also like a place where we can have a lot of impact so we're not really we, we have clients that we would we're very happy with and then clients that we would love to have but I think like we're quite open with the types of yeah. businesses we can work with and that's something very nice i think about pentatonic that we can apply our skills and services to many many different
1: yeah maybe, maybe i can i can give that, some
2: examples or something put that
1: into a little bit of context so um what we fundamentally do are two things we help to develop new products um whether that's packaging materials or products proper uh, or even point of sale tools um that are responsible for cumulatively for millions of tons of material usage in a way where they can be recycled more easily. So that's upstream supply chain. How do we make things so that they're inherently recyclable? We also help to establish and run, take back programs and decommissioning solutions. So at the point of a product's life cycle where it can no longer be resold or repaired, what happens to that? So what we call this is material life cycle management. So there's good product life cycle management tools out there. I think it's a space that's growing a vibrant space that's growing. It's important that it's growing, but we believe at Pentatonic that the impact is close to the material. So 70% of the world's carbon emissions are linked to material extraction, manufacturing and transport. And all of the pollution is linked to human use of materials and a lot of social inequity happens upstream in the supply chain. Think about a copper mine or uh, cotton farming just to stay on the letter C and downstream at the disposal uh, stage, like where things are dumped, which communities are affected by um, industrial and uh, end of consumption waste. So to, to remedy this, we work with, we build new supply chains and help to run them. And we build decommissioning chains and help to run them.
0: Would you maybe like to give us like a concrete example of one of your works? Maybe you can uh, you can just describe like a project you've done.
1: Sure, um, we can each give one. Um, the so some of our most exciting projects we cannot talk about just yet. So we're working on some long term initiatives, most of which will see the light of day in the second half of this decade because they're fundamental transformations of supply and decommissioning chains. It pains me very much that I'm not able to talk about these things with much detail um, but uh, that that's just, you know, th- the more important uh, and, and transformational a project is, the more paramount um, confidentiality becomes to our corporate um, customers. Um, one, I'll, I can give you two quick examples from the past um, of a decommissioning and a supply chain project. So um, on the decommissioning end, we've worked with Burger King um, in the UK in response to discontinuing the use of toys in kids' meals. And there was, of course, a huge back, <laughs> backlog of pre order toys. There were also toys that were being returned by the children who had petitioned in the UK against the use of toys in kids' meals, which I, by the way, believe is a perfectly valid thing um and this mountain of toys now had to be recycled so we are the we have the proud we're proudly bearing the distrin- distinction of um supervillain by having recycled millions of batmans we've have, we have crushed more superheroes than anyone out there so um these 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 toys are not made to be recycled so this was a, a project where a bespoke supply chain had to be built things had to be taken apart various polymers recycled separately and then from some of those polymers that were up to the um, specification um, uh, required, we made the food trays that went back to the Burger King UK stores. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's something that's you know a concluded project that's in the past that I can I can talk about is well published as well, and so rather than something being burnt waste to energy, um, uh, that was done. Or just landfill, exactly. So you, you have a real ma- material recovery. So that's one example.
0: Maybe we can talk a bit about the Hay Fashion Platform. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this is a really interesting platform. I had a look at it before our mm-hmm. talk, of course, <laughs> and found it really um, helpful also, like the um, political uh, tracker, um, upcoming legislation tracker, and so on. So maybe you can uh, just describe a bit about uh, how this project came to life and uh, what you are actually doing with the Alien Fisher Foundation.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So that was my project. I was super, super happy to work on it and very proud of uh, the team behind it. Um, but we we've had uh, contact with Eileen personally for for some years now, so we've kind of been on her radar and we worked with the brand previously, Eileen Fisher Inc. Um, and then at some point in 2021, I think it was, she approached Johan, um, like asking like. I mean, the topic of waste has been very close to her heart and her organization. She has really taken concrete steps to try and solve that for her own business. But obviously, it's a huge issue. So um, this this topic has always troubled her. Um, and she she wanted to try to get more into it and understand, like, why why? isn't progress happening faster, like what are the main barriers, like what are the solutions, potential solutions. So she approached us, she initially asked for um, some research to be done, and, and that's what we did. And then it was created into a into a report, which then they decided they would like to have that publicly released, you know, for anyone's benefit. So this was funded from the Eileen Fisher Foundation, so the the nonprofit side of Eileen's organisation um and then it just built up from there so to try and have as much impact as possible to to, you know to try and reach this as many people as possible with this information um yeah we built the the website around it tried to build up the social and just to try to get this information out there in a in an understandable digestible way that's not so complicated that only you know the one percent of like industry specialists could understand it and also not that you know the Every day, um, like people can just be turned off by it or just find it boring. So we try to find this sweet spot of like getting like reliable information out there, but in a way that can really start to support people and change into yeah better decision making. Whether that's people that work at fashion companies, people that potentially work in government agencies and are looking for direction, or um, yeah, also just everyday shoppers. So that's kind of the trajectory it went on. Um, and then we've just tried to keep an eye on like what what else exists out there, because there are lots of um, initiatives and so on. And we wanted to try and fill a gap of need and not just an, add another initiative. Um, and the legislation tracker that you just mentioned, actually, was one kind of interesting idea we had where we just thought, for us personally, working at Pentatonic, not just in the fashion industry, but across many industries, there's so much legislation and so much movement. And it's very hard to keep on top of that. Um, so we started to kind of just track it internally in a very rudimentary way. And then we thought, actually, if we're struggling with this, many people must be looking for some kind of like, easy tool to, to you know, to support them. So that's what it kind of grew from and we had a super nice response to it for what sounded potentially like something a little bit not boring but not so exciting as some of the topics and um, people really responded well to it so we felt like pretty motivated by that that it filled a, filled a need.
0: Well I mean right now we're facing uh, like the first uh, regulation phase for fashion I mean with the EU Texas strategy so we had like a session in our podcast uh, last week um, on the on the upcoming EU Texas strategy and the legislation around it so I think this is uh, really interesting also because it's an ongoing process and uh, right now I mean the directives are out there but I mean the the laws are not really done yet so I'm, I mean this is really interesting for like the industry but also like as you say um, for B2C customers maybe to follow a bit uh, what's actually up coming up um and we've had also a talk about the fashion industry being the first time regulated uh, in like lifetime so to say so what do you think what effects will legislation have on the fashion industry
2: i guess we're, we're already seeing it um with the greenwashing thing i think this is the thing that's blown up the most because it kind of it also relates into marketing and, and media but like people starting to hold brands accountable for the claims that they make and um, this feels like one of the early kind of impacts that everyday people are seeing in the news like stories against fashion businesses and I can only assume it will grow from there as there's like more and more controls and restrictions on how fashion businesses can operate they're gonna have to change their ways or yeah face like hefty fines or restrictions and then eventually yeah Fade out. <laughs> Hopefully, we start to weed out the the really bad companies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. If I mean, a
0: lot of legislation is also around uh, circularity. This is one of the biggest goals uh, from the EU. Um, yeah. So, do you think that it's uh, very much supporting your work as well?
1: Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think. And within and outside of fashion, there's a bunch of legislation coming through, and I think it's completely necessary. It's always a it's always walking a tightrope to to balance um leaving enough freedom um and in in the economy for innovation to occur while legislating enough for things to move the right direction so it is difficult but i think some of the legislation that the eu has announced for fashion and outside of fashion is pushing towards that goal so cbam for example is for the building industry where you know uh, high high embedded carbon materials such as steel and concrete um are um Subject to levies and, and 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 indirect fines, if you will, if you don't manufacture them locally or in the right way, subsidizing hydrogen-based uh, steel production is is w- which you know will always be at least fifty percent more exp- expensive than regular steel is another example. I think the same needs to happen in fashion. Some of it is already happening, and um, we sometimes perhaps belittle fashion when we think of the built environment as such a big polluter, but fashion is just as polluting and carbon intense. Um, mm-hmm as as any other industry and um it's important to to legislate here as well
0: but what do you think how far away are we from true circularity in the fashion industry
1: maybe i can i can give some context first Mm -hmm. okay so um we use a lot of fibers and i think what separates us from circularity is some ideology and some legislation and arguably some change in consumer mindset, although I would argue that we shouldn't rely on that because we shouldn't place the biggest burden to drive action on the least powerful segment of the population, which is the consumer. I can't say, well, if I can't figure out my supply chain, my consumer needs to to be so nuanced in their purchase decisions as to bring about the right thing. That would be great, but I wouldn't burden the consumer with all of that, as much as legislators and companies I think sometimes what's holding us back is this idea of a silver bullet. Like, we should just use, stop using synthetic materials or you know, simple blanket solutions that aren't really practically feasible. Like, when I struggle to imagine a world where we use zero synthetic fibers like polyester. All of sportswear would become worse. Um, and even if we replaced all of polyester, for example, or, or synthetic fibers with cotton... We've performed a calculation that estimates that that would take a million acres of farmland worth of cotton. So, if you say no more synthetics, that would be the entire arable land of China, all of the farmland China has, as an example, um, and it would add twenty-five percent of water consumption to agriculture, including food. So,
0: assuming we are producing as much as we are doing right exactly. now,
1: exactly. So, if consumption, so all all predictions for consumption of fibers are on the up for all fibers. So, if if we against all assumptions, managed to keep it the same, which would be a massive achievement, an unprecedented massive achievement, then we still couldn't switch to all natural or all th- synthetic. We have to fix both. And in my opinion, a lot of the damage is done at the primary resource extraction. That's when you're drilling for the petrochemical. That's when you're growing the cotton. And so recycling the material we already make, I believe, is the strongest intervention that that, that, that one can have. Um and then in terms of how far away are we from it, technologically, we're getting closer, but things take time to scale. So I believe things will move slowly and then quickly all of a sudden, which will leave some companies behind that think of it as, oh, this is not really happening. Or I can just, you know, talk the talk, but not walk the walk when suddenly there'll be a rude awakening that, you know, they haven't invested in the supplier relationships and the manufacturing technologies, etc.
0: I mean, the industry is talking a lot about uh, fiber-to-fiber recycling right now. And, I mean, there is also um, a couple of, like, startups or, like, scale-up companies out there already having solutions uh, since a couple of years. So, what do you think? Do you have an idea on, like, or, like, an, a feeling on... um Uh, How long will it take until they would really scale? So we will be able to uh, split synthetic fibers from natural fibers because, I mean, of course, fashion is made from fiber mixes uh, usually or most of the the garments are made uh, not uh, from mono material.
1: I think there's a fundamental question is how much do you need to change the input, right? So if you if you say the rules of the game are you can mix any amount of fibers together into a garment and someone needs to come up with a magic recycling technology that separates them at no cost, That's hard. I think we need to intervene both at the stage of product creation and um, product dismantlement. So we get better at at separating and we also get better at not mixing so many things. And eventually those two curves will meet. Um, That's my belief. I think if if we just look to one magic recycling technology, we'll be stuck where things like the dual system for packaging materials in Germany are, which is a downcycling of mixed materials together mm-hmm. and how many park benches from plastic do you really need and how many mixed unknown fibres do you really need, so that's my opinion but would you agree, Lauren?
2: Yeah, no, I definitely agree um, and in terms of like how far we are or the, t- the timeline like, I think we look at examples like RenewCell or someone like that that's quite established now but still on a pretty small scale like you know they have like one or two plants um and they they're doing a great job but like this is a drop in the ocean and that's taken them I can't remember when they're founded but like between like 10 and 15 years you know so we're talking decades to really get to where we have an infrastructure behind the system that we need to handle materials responsibly and even those new systems can come with unforeseen problems or like with man-made cellulosics like I think this the recycling of cotton and and viscose and stuff back into that is is very necessary and very interesting but even processing of man-made cellulosics like back into fibers comes with you know lots of other like issues around factories like they've seen with like chemical leakage and things like that so it's not like there's always going to be impact and we just have to really keep scrutinizing every step of that. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to get there, but it's going to take time. And I completely agree with Johan that like there is no silver bullet solution. Like we need lots and lots of different like solutions that all mesh together to create a robust system that can handle lots of different inputs for lots of different applications because yeah. We cannot just switch to all bio-based
1: or, you know. Yeah, And if we recycled all cotton into viscose, who needs that much viscose is the other question. Yeah. It's, it's just a smaller market. So it's a super impressive and necessary technology, but it cannot we, we cannot uh, rely on any one technology.
2: No. And with the polyester thing, I mean, it seems like one of the biggest blockers of like the the fashion industry and the textile industry moving in a better direction is like the fossil fuel industry and how this is just propped up and the cost like is just you cannot compete with like these better fibers right now that because there aren't these interventions yet that like um either subsidize better fibers or penalize properly penalize those yeah yeah more um damaging fibers so it's that's why i think it's also moving too slowly because while we have this cheap polyester it's just blended into everything like yeah
1: i think one thing we need to make sure of is that when you do natural fiber recycling so carding and re-yarning um, the, the the length of the individual filaments tends to be a problem so adding a bit of polyester is an easy and cheap pseudo solution to that problem which leads leads you to a mostly recycled re-yarned yarn, so it's good in the sense that it's a post-consumer re-yarned product. You avoided va- waste, but then now you have a completely unrecyclable mix of natural and synthetic uh, material. So that that's that's a route that, that's a comfortable route we shouldn't allow ourselves to go down.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel so too because uh, I think always in the discussion of, around circularity and recycling the terms are also getting mixed up because i mean uh, like talking about circularity it means that you actually keep the product in a cycle so you can or you need to create products which can be recycled properly recycled into new products again from the same um, value so i mean what we are just discussing or what uh, example you just made was uh, like a downcycling or recycling process and that's uh, actually something different than uh, like a true circularity that's why I was also asking from true circularity because, and that's this is also it's my opinion. This is why I think like the green claims directive is very helpful um, because that hof- hopefully clarifies also the discussion outside and also to the consumers. Because I mean, a lot of companies are um, communicating about circularity when it's actually recycling or like downcycling, mm-hmm. yeah. even
1: or, or just reselling sometimes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, 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 which is what should happen before recycling. But yes. yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah, the terms are very. Convoluted, and I think everyday people they, they have no idea really like what is circularity, it's just a new sustainability word.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I mean, if you if you do a store check outside, if you um, talk to sales stuff, I mean, I was I, I was do I do it once in a while and asking for like more sustainable alternatives in like I don't know, like a concept <laughs> store or something. This is really funny, it's, it's something to test out. Yeah. And I, I mean, people like last time, uh, he was just uh, like a, a man who he was he was just saying, like, yeah, but but. I, I was asking like this jacket is more sustainable isn't it I mean there is this like hang text and like labeling on it and he was like yeah but everyone has like some labels and I mean I don't I don't care I mean I I don't I don't believe anything of that and I mean I was like okay this is like the truth and uh, I mean we are like discussing in our bubble and of course yeah. we are like in the industry and that's uh, important but I mean anyway I mean I totally agree that I mean like the consumers and I mean this is like normal people uh, they would not understand and they wouldn't not need to understand either i think that's also the responsibilities of um, companies and legislation to actually have like a clear guidance through communication but also through like uh, product design
2: yeah i mean especially like when we talk about fashion like not just apparel but fashion like that has not existed to feed a sustainability desire or whatever you know that's not where it's coming from it's sort of started to try and subsume some of that but like that's not its purpose it's not its area of expertise and so and that's also like you point out it's like maybe the average you know concept store staff like they're they're not trained on that they're not they're standing there to look cool and to feed a desire and so I think like I think there's there's many many interventions we can have but one of them is like training people that go through like fashion and you know similar degrees so that they're at least equipped with the basic knowledge that when, then when they go into the industry like it's not only about aesthetics and like because like even me that's how i was trained i went to london college of fashion and graduated in 2011 there were none of these topics were on the table it was just down to personal interest and responsibility we were taught about the drape of fabrics like how they um yeah how they behave like you know, how you can drape with them or like how they, I don't know, you know, just basically everything to do with aesthetics. Um, and so if we don't equip those people appropriately, like it's just going to trickle down, you know, and then you end up with these products that are just completely like not fit for a circular system.
0: Wow, <laughs> no, no, But they don't need to. I think, I mean, that's the beauty of it fashion. Yeah. And that's also yeah, like yeah. the big power of it. fashion because uh, you have this certain aesthetic and you can reach with this aesthetic, you can reach and The aesthetic and the storytelling, you can reach basically everyone because, I mean, everyone is kind of consuming fashion. And I think that's also a big power, which is lying and coming also with the responsibility. (coughs) So... I mean, no other industry is better in storytelling than fashion industry, I would say. I mean, of course, like film, movie, and I don't know, other, other creative industries um, as well. But I mean, fashion industry, at least on the product side, is uh, very, very effective in like uh, pushing more products into the market um, and uh, like, um, like serving different needs, which are well, not re- manufac- like real needs.
1: Manufacturing and then servicing somewhat inflated needs. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah
0: yeah that's that's probably the right term. I Thanks. need
1: to wear a different outfit to work every day. That's that's what I need.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's the need. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like funny side, People sorry, don't. off the record. <laughs> 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 like uh, meeting my neighbor, he's like 13 years old and he was like, "Oh my god, the internet uh, has gone down. Now I don't have any internet uh, in my bathroom longer." And I was like, "This is really like like top first world's problem. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have real internet connection in my bathroom. So it's just like about needs uh, like yes. in our society. Mm. But um, let's talk a bit about uh, impact. I mean, uh, your work is very much impact-driven. Um, ours as well, with Studio MMO Four. So, and I find it really complicated to measure impact and also to to find out uh, like where to really um, make a difference. So, uh, how do you or do you have a system of measure your impact, or do you uh, establish kind of an impact um, measurement system with your customers?
1: Yes. So, so I think measuring many variables is important. Weighing between different variables is also important without falling prey to the tendency to be apodictic. So if you, for example, look at a recycling supply chain, like a decommissioning chain, you can optimize it to recycle every last bit of material. So let's say you take something apart and then you send every single component to the perfect specialty recycler for just that material. But then your transportation carbon footprint is very high. The other extreme would be to just burn everything so you have no transportation carbon footprint. And I think we need to build out all the capacities. We need to make sure that we have all the necessary specialty recycling in as many geographies as possible. So there's an argument for both. And I think we shouldn't fall prey to the dogmatism of either side. We try to immediately optimize for just one variable – Pollution is important. Endocrine disruption is a big concern. Air pollution is a massive concern. Water use, um, water use, acid acidification uh, potential, eutrophication potential. So all of these, um, all of these things um, that you know are, we have some vague idea of which may be most impactful. Antibiotic resistance, you know, but it's very hard to say how many units of antibiotic resistance is worth how many units of. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions it's very hard to weigh these things which doesn't mean you shouldn't measure them and measuring them doesn't mean you should weigh them i I think just being uh, grown up enough to understand that there are things we don't understand um, and courageous enough to to um, to constantly revisit the data and try to optimize things in a balanced fashion is, is important it's a little bit unsatisfying i think people, arguably, specifically Germans, like definite solutions. I'm carefully picking that word. (laughs) (laughs) But we... um but, but we're just not at the point where we can manage ourselves. If we, if we picture humanity as one giant metabolism, like one organism that transforms materials, we're just not as sophisticated as nature yet. Nature manages to move way more material, way more efficiently. So, so, and we're just not quite there yet. We, we need to learn a lot of things about the interrelationship of certain systems. Um, so that would be my long, short answer to this.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, uh, there would be a lot of like points where I could uh, like <laughs> go in now. Uh, I would actually like to throw the question again. Uh, do you have any systems of mirroring impact or do you have any, um, um, I don't know, any rules set for yourself to say like, okay, if there's a customer coming up to you uh, with a certain idea, if you are working uh, with the company or not?
1: In terms of frameworks, ISO 14,040 is of course um, a broad but correct framework to measure impact. That's what most life psychoanalyses are based off. I think the databases that are behind most specific life uh, psychoanalysis tools are always, by default, um, retrospective and slow. So they don't they, they give you they, they, they tell you the impact of a given product if you had made it five years ago, if things would never change. So, if you have a new, highly recyclable material, but there's no recycling infrastructure for it yet, it will look worse than a highly scaled, non-recyclable material. So there are. So it doesn't mean you should throw life cycle analysis out. It should. It just means you have to take it with a grain of salt. And this is where you get into difficulties, like things like the higg index, where um, you you make certain assumptions, um, or you have to make certain assumptions, and how biased you are um, may may become a problem or not. So, so, life cycle analysis, ISO 14,040, that's one. And what I think is crucially important is a feedback loop. So, as we set up, for example, when I talk about the the project we did with, with Burger King, we have actual data of like how much energy it took and how much material was moved to do a certain recycling run. So, this is real world data in a specific location of things that have actually happened. There's a different quality of data and that's also important to take into consideration. And Lastly, forward looking, you need to do some first principles thinking. Like if you're coming up with a new material, of course, initially, per kilo, the carbon footprint will be huge because you don't have massively optimized supply chains and infrastructure. You know, if you're making something in a, in a pilot factory, you're using much more human labor. You're transporting raw materials from further away, you know, but, but you need to um, consider whether at scale that technology could actually beat out or whether it intrinsically is more... Um, sustainable than the entrenched um, status quo. So you have retrospective, you have current feedback loops, so if you like LCAs, the past data feedback loops from things in systems you have ongoing is the present data and then first principles thinking for future assumptions and you constantly have to revisit all. Um, there's no one paradigm I believe that in and it of itself gives you the perfect prediction of what happens and I want to add to this that as humans we're particularly terrible at so so many things but predicting the economy is we're astonishingly bad like not nobody knows the gold price 20 seconds or 20 milliseconds from now otherwise you could make a fortune right away no one knows so to claim that we know how materials will circulate globally 10 years from now you know it's 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 a bit of a stretch uh, we still have to do it but we shouldn't we shouldn't be too dogmatic and too confident in in being right all the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, has Burger King stopped with the uh, uh, toys? By the way, sorry, Burger King has stopped with the uh, toys in
1: the UK. They have. Um, there, there has been a public commitment by Burger King and their competitors to stop using toys in other geographies as well. Um, I think, for many reasons that are not recycling related, that may be a good thing. And um, I think, in terms of what kind of products do we get? The next generation of consumers used to like. Do we do we wean them off short-lived, easily broken, quick dopamine type things? I mean, arguably, it's the right direction to go in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This was what I was thinking because I mean, it it was really nice. It's a really nice project. Um, I think uh, also to recycle. But I mean, in the beginning, this uh, product uh, is probably not worth to be produced in, from from scratch. <laughs> yes, in my opinion. Yes. yes,
1: have you convinced your children of, of that?
0: Oh well, I don't think that I've ever been to Burger King, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> great job! I mean, it's just like uh, we are like working with sustainability, so it's but why uh, it's only probably McDonald's like <laughs> or McDonald's? No, I don't think that they have actually ever entered like a McDonald's or Burger King store. Yeah, my kids are still like like this. Uh, yeah, they are still living in a bubble. Mm. Great. Yeah, even if, even if they grow up in in a Kreuzberg, so they so like. <laughs> Also in a certain bubble, I would say. Still so continuing um, talking about impact, you've mentioned that uh, if you're working with bigger corporates that you have a lot of confidential uh, agreements for them. So um, what I uh, was thinking about is, um, wouldn't it be uh, better and creating a bigger impact if you would be more transparent in your work and you could share with the other industry stakeholders as well as uh, yeah, creating more transparency and also open
1: source? Yes, it would. So... Collectively, if everyone shared all their progress all the time, everyone would make more progress in a shorter period of time. However, the way our current economy works, and not at all implying there's a better way, I think every economic paradigm has its pros and cons, incentivizes companies to want to have unique selling points, to to stick out from the competition. This is especially true in fashion, where I feel everyone is trying to brand their own eco-fabric they didn't develop themselves. And um, it's a problem because if everyone just shared best practices and did the right thing, um, there wouldn't be any demarcation criteria in that. So they couldn't use it for branding. So it's, it's a legitimate kind of game theory problem. And uh, and, and, and so the, the logic of collective action that I just alluded to uh, earlier uh, by the economist Olson um, describes this kind of upscaled prisoner's dilemma where you have, if we all work towards a common good like something we have access to uh, equally, like good air quality, and then it's beneficial for us as a whole. But because so many actors have to move in direction X, if I don't, if I become a freeloader, I just benefit of everyone else's action, it's beneficial for me. And then everyone becomes a freeloader and you have this kind of oscillation. So I think that's, that's the conundrum. One industry that has solved for that is tech. In tech, places like GitHub, you somehow open sourcing your work works out for people somehow that subculture as many flaws as it potentially has has managed to 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 solve for that problem maybe because they all studied game theory i don't know but it's um it, it is something that in corporate consumer brands and especially fashion you know they're very secretive about their next collection probably the aesthetic would be better if everyone shared what they're going to do and um, you have launch events and you know you 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 have uh, companies you know, really being meticulous about their announcements. You don't know who their next creative director is going to be. So all the decision making in in these consumer industries is is traditionally quite secretive. And it would be strange if suddenly you know collective action is being taken with total transparency. I hope we're moving towards that, but I think the only thing in the short run that can force common action is legislation. Mm-hmm. I don't think that suddenly brands will act in their s- disinterest and, and all hold hands and kumbaya? Because it's very hard to be the first one. What if you're the only brand that's jumping and now everyone has your IP, but you don't have anyone else's IP? It's it's a conundrum. So.
0: Well, I can see some developments to w- towards more transparency. Uh, it's also like in greeting ingredient branding is also coming um, more and more up so I mean that's that's something which is opening up ways for other companies also to um, access like other materials and to to yeah it's it's a bit harder than to keep secrets but I, I mean I abs- absolutely agree and I'm also working with in the fashion industry for 15 years so I mean there is this like some pre-competitive uh, collaboration and there is some spaces there is some roundtables there is some uh, some talks around it and um, and I mean, it has been a progress, I think, looking at the last 10 years, but I mean, still in creating a real impact. So if uh, people would really be impact driven, um, there would be much more transparency out there.
1: Yeah, we, we have one customer in, in a consumer industry. I cannot mention them by name. And they actually, there's a chief sustainability officer called the chief sustainability officer of their biggest competitor and said, our work with Pentatonic is quite impactful and you should consider joining in on that one. So that was an admirable example that it was, um, unfortunately, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was surprised that this happened, um, where, where in other industries that wasn't fashion, one was able to say, okay, we'll, let's compete on aesthetic, let's compete on price point, let's compete on like who has the better advertisement campaign, but let's not compete on who has Uh, less impact let's let's just you know hold hands and all get less impactful Mm -hmm. uh, or adversely impactful to the environment so maybe this can happen in fashion i don't know lauren you know the industry better (laughs) Might
2: between some groups i mean i think if you look at like the topic of waste i think a lot of businesses are starting to realize this is just way too complex for them to solve on their own and so i think these kind of areas are like people are starting to join up together a little bit more to try and have like a common solution and probably like a lot of the ways that the like EPR um, laws will like manifest will mean that companies are using a lot of like the same services and so on, but that's not quite the same as revealing. That's not like the sexy end of IP. That's just like, we need a solution. We can't find it on our own. So let's come together. But um, yeah, I would take those little bursts of progress of nothing. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. I think that uh, that is our closing
0: words. Uh, So there is one thing to mention because there is like a book coming out on the 6th of August I just learned and the title you need to mention yourself because I forgot already.
1: It's it's a long title. So um, Circular Economy, the 7th Industrial Revolution and how you can achieve more sustainability through circular economy. I'm translating this from the German title. This book is coming out in German by Springer Nature. It's It's the publishing house. Um, I have co-authored this um, book with Wolfgang Lehmacher, who used to be um, uh, leading the supply chain and logistics communities at the World Economic Forum, and prior to that was the global CEO of Geopost. Um, And um, between his knowledge of supply chain and logistics, my my, my knowledge of uh, supply chains and circular economy, we wrote a quite practical guide to mid- and large-scale enterprises Uh, on how to get started on this journey because we find many of our peers or many of the people who are in positions of power across various supply chains from like SMEs all the way to large-scale corporates want to take action as individuals, care deeply as people, but don't quite find the starting point in the corporate reality to do so. So it's a very action-oriented Book um, in German and hopefully soon to be translated into many many languages. Many I'm pages? sure it will. <laughs> <laughs> it's. Um, I don't. I don't know how the formatting comes out. I think it will be around two to three hundred pages.
2: Okay, so it's not like a Bible, of
1: like. No, we 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 restrained ourselves. It's it's yeah.
0: It's too digest. So okay, thank you so much. Um, that was a real pleasure to have this conversation with you too. Um, we are like coming uh, into place on July in the twenty twenty thirty 30 pop-up edition on Denim. I hope you will be joining as guests. I don't know mm-hmm. if you are on stage that time. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, and our, also for our community gathering. So please uh, follow our show notes. Uh, we will mention the book and write the title so you can find it as, long, uh, as soon as it's released. And um, please also follow us on Instagram and check out pentatonic.com website. Thank you for listening and please follow us on Instagram and also on LinkedIn. Uh, We have some more podcast editions coming up as well. Please stay
2: tuned.